0: First, though, we are talking about a story that is both heartbreaking and frustrating. Seven months after her husband drowned in the Okanagan while trying to save their 14 year old daughter, Yuru Sheikh is struggling to get the family back together financially and to get some semblance of their life back. She's facing a huge hurdle financially because she's been trying to sell and has sold their rental property in Chilliwack, a property she and her family were. We're going to move to that was delayed. She's now sold the property, but having issues with tenants who refuse to leave.
1: Unfortunately, June 2020, my husband passed away due to a tragic accident, and due to that, I was left with the house. I inherited the house. I'm the beneficiary, and I am responsible for taking care of the financial matters. Um, we were trying to get contacting the tenants to at least pay their rent and. Uh, we understand that it's a difficult situation for everybody. And it's, we were okay with them paying late, but then they just stopped paying. And we had to hire an eviction company to try and get them to at least pay rent. They weren't paying rent. I'm just not able to afford the property. I'm working part-time. I have four children. It's very unexpected. Like your breadwinner is gone. All of a sudden you have this huge loss of income. I just can't afford that property. So we've been very accommodating with them. We've been they, they know since July that the house, we are going to sell it. So they have a lot of notice. It's been a very long time. And during this difficult situation, we actually were able to um, show it and, and sell the house. The completion now is end of January. It's the last time the eviction company spoke to them. They, they are refusing to leave, even though the house is sold. Now I'm in a bind. We are contractually obligated to the buyer to have that property vacant. Otherwise, uh, they can come after me legally.
0: I don't know what to do. Now, in addition to that, Yuru uh, says she's gone to government. She's been told it will be several months before there could be any kind of hearing with the tenancy branch and that there is a huge backlog in dealing with cases involving eviction. So let's bring in David Hutniak, who is the CEO of Landlord BC. David, thanks so much for agreeing to uh, talk with us today.
2: I can hear you. Oh. You can. <laughs> there you
0: are. Sorry, I couldn't hear you there for a second. Uh, okay. all, good. all good now. We've got the right uh, buttons pushed. Hopefully uh, you heard uh, that uh, clip that I just yeah, played. I did. I uh,
2: did. I heard all that. Yeah.
0: And, and without getting, I don't want you to have to get into the middle and stuck in these details. Uh, but uh, something else that Yuru Sheikh said that wasn't in there was that sh- when she uh, tried to get this resolved, when she tried to figure out what to do, uh, she was told that cases like this that generally would be dealt with quite quickly, uh, there's a huge backlog because of COVID nineteen and because uh, there are so many cases,
2: yeah. I mean, this is an interesting situation. There's many moving parts here, and uh, uh, you know, I saw the uh, the uh, I guess the global covered this last night, and, and I've been sort of monitoring this. So we don't have all the details, but there's some obvious uh, issues that jump out in terms of you know what kind of notice uh, was given to end the tenancy for for the breach of the tenancy by not paying rent and and then uh, you know certainly when anyone's anyone selling a property today a tenant and property you know it's really important that uh, they and, and through their realtor uh, that they uh, basically in, in uh, incorporate appropriate language in their, their the purchase agreement uh, or uh, with the with the buying uh, the, the purchasing uh, party to to protect them in the eventuality that they are unable to uh, deliver a vacant unit so that's those are a couple of things that jumped out real quickly but to answer your specific question you know i we we are in regular communication with the rtb i i, I we're in fact meeting with him uh, i believe it's next week early next week is sort of a part of a regular process um you know the orders of possession you know typically are you know seven to to, uh, eight week, maybe even nine week turnaround time for an order of possession. The emergency ones happen much more, much more quickly in in normal times. I think, uh, yeah, it's probably fair to say, and again, I can't speak for RTB and and until we do this meeting next week when we get more, more information, you know, I'm going to guess that uh, certainly uh, the issue is not necessarily increased volume uh, because, you know, there's no big, tsunami of uh, evictions or anything that's occurring i think it's probably just everybody's working remote and and just the the resource human resource challenges for their staff their arbitrators etc is all in all likelihood has um, you know impacted their turnaround time so what we understand right now and what we're hearing is it's around 11 weeks which is you know obviously a long a period of time but, uh, you know, in the context of where they typically, a typical turnaround time for a uh, for a possession order, you know, it's not atrocious, but uh, obviously, uh, you know, we would like to see it, uh, you know, the turnaround faster. And, and certainly, you know, the situation that this uh, individual is facing is, you know, I would classify it as, as almost an emergency at this uh, point in time.
0: And you're right, there's a lot happening in this particular case, and she mentioned as well that the tenants had stopped paying rent, uh, yeah. which in itself is a different issue than the fact that she sold the house and then they were issued an eviction notice. Are, are, are landlords dealing with more uh, of scenarios because of the pandemic where tenants are refusing to pay the rent?
2: You know, uh, when uh, you, you're uh, your team reached out to me. Uh, I had a chance to talk to our staff and and, uh, our members have access to a helpline, a dedicated helpline uh, on legislative issues. And, uh, you know, it's it's a highly used resource. uh, And I was talking to uh, our team there and just sort of trying to get a, a sense for, you know, are, are we uh, hearing more of these issues from our members? And we have 3,300 members. And the fact of the matter is we're not. Um, I mean, this, this has been, you know, there's, there's a, a, a challenge uh, where, you know, perhaps the appropriate notice isn't given. Uh, again, you know, that the, the, uh, the vendor uh, through their realtor hasn't necessarily taken the necessary precautions to the agreement in terms of language purchase agreements with language, et cetera. So, so, in fact, our team, uh, like I said, we are they're manning the phones a lot with our members. They have not noticed that this is a more prevalent issue uh, currently due to the pandemic. And, uh, uh, you know, I think what m- might be occurring in terms of the broader real estate market is, you know, so many sales occurred. I mean, you know, if you follow follow that at all, so I, su- I suppose uh, you know it's it's been an issue that is. Uh isn't becoming a little more prevalent, but uh, uh, frankly, our members have not really raised this issue uh, um, you know, with any greater frequency than in the past.
0: Well, well, that's uh, some good news for sure. And I, I, and news, I guess yeah. then the other question in a case like this would be, and you mentioned this, that such a short closing period, but when a homeowner uh, that is also a landlord sells a property, uh, that, that generally means, uh, I was under the assumption that unfortunately for the people living in the property, they are given notice and They have to leave because it's changed hands and it's going to uh, another owner. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean, basically, there's a requirement for two months' notice for the new purchaser to occupy the 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 home, and that's that's key here. You know, I mean, that's the the realtor and the and the vendor need to you know establish with certainty, frankly, uh, or reasonable certainty that the new purchaser is going to occupy the unit because if If you know or they may represent that they're going to, but in fact, that they plan on doing that because that creates a whole other range of complications under the residential tenancy act. so so there's there's a degree of due diligence in terms of you know ensuring that whoever's buying your your home with, with, with is currently a renter, you know uh, the uh, you know you you really need to as as a vendor and, and work with your realtor to, like I said, ensure you have appropriate language protecting yourself. Because you know there's un- unpredictability here, and, and one is you may have a belligerent tenant. The other is that you know the purchaser you know may may not be uh, totally upfront about what their intention is. I mean, they're not the two month notice assumes that they're going to move in and live in that hu- that home, that rental home. So so like I said, it, it's it's. Uh, You know, I was talking to Ben earlier, I said I can't get too deep in the weeds here because I don't know all the circumstances here. But that, I think, would give you a sense for it. But in in terms of your initial question, I think, yes, absolutely. You know, the RTB is experiencing uh, sort of longer turnaround time on uh, possession orders, on on those hearings. Uh, I don't know that, you know, I would rate it atrocious, um, but nevertheless, uh, you know, Certainly, you know we and every all landlords would like to see that turnaround happen, uh, you know, more 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 quickly, and uh, you know, but uh, and we hope to learn a little more about this when we do have sort of a, a regularly regularly scheduled meeting with them uh, next week.
0: All right. So, well, David, I appreciate uh, you being able to come on in such short notice uh, and talk uh, more generally about this. Thank you so much for your time today.
2: Yeah. Thanks, Jill. Take care.
0: Well, you heard that breaking news history unfolding right now. Voting is now underway. Enough votes reached to impeach President Trump, condemning him for his role in the riot at the Capitol. Let's bring in Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent. Reggie, thanks so much for taking some time. Good afternoon. Uh, Where are we at right now?
3: Uh, So uh, there's no time remaining left in the uh, vote-taking on the house floor. Uh, we're just watching this right now. And it looks like, uh, if all the numbers are there, 231 uh, yays. For this resolution to impeach President Trump, 197 nays, and that's important because it shows that there was a break in Republican ranks, not as much as what Democrats had been hoping for, was thinking maybe a dozen or up to 20. But the fact that 10 Republicans uh, fell out of line with where they have been over the last four years uh, is a remarkable moment uh, in political history un, uh, in, uh, under rather President Trump.
0: And so what happens at this point now that we do have or there, there are the, that number of votes uh, that uh, are in favor of? of impeachment.
3: So this is going to now lead to another Senate trial. This is what we saw back uh, in the impeachment of President Trump Uh, Linked to that phone call with Ukraine's leader, Uh, the thing that is going to be different is this is not going to be that long, drawn out, several day long Senate hearing. Uh, We are hoping uh, we are hearing rather uh, that this is going to be a much more abbreviated session. And it's because Democrats are saying, look, we don't need to bring in expert witness testimony because lawmakers were eyewitnesses to the uh, crisis that took place in the U.S. Capitol. And Democrats are trying to say that President Trump uh, holds responsibility because of his rhetoric. So this will go to the Senate. It's just an open question of when.
0: And when we talk about the 10 Republicans that broke ranks and voted in favor, can you talk a bit about some of the reasons? I mean, it might seem obvious to people, but what were some of the reasons that they gave as to why they made that decision?
3: Well, look, the Republicans that broke ranks are simply saying that they were putting Constitution over the president they were putting constitution over a loyalty to the party and that's really what we've seen over the last four years is republicans fearful uh, of a tweet from president trump or fearful that president trump may turn his base on them uh, during an election campaign Uh, and what happened at the u.s capitol last week was simply a line in the sand for many of these republicans who said uh, that the violence uh, that the attempts to kind of call out the free and fair election and undermine election integrity was just a bridge too far uh, and And that is why you were seeing that the people who broke with Republicans today are the same ones who were not objecting uh, to the electoral counts last week.
0: Uh, There's only a few days left uh, until or one week uh, until the inauguration. What does this mean as far as the next seven days uh, with uh, the president still being President Donald Trump?
3: Well, I mean, look, Democrats are going to try to uh, twist the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's arms into opening up uh, an early session of the Senate to try and get a trial going forward, potentially to remove President Trump from office before he is ultimately uh, forced out uh, after the inauguration of Joe Biden. If that doesn't happen, this is going to be a contentious seven days again in politics where you still have the president uh, with an ability to get a message out to the public, despite the fact that he's lost social media. Uh, You are still going to have... uh, The potential uh, infighting within the Republican Party now that they realize that this fracture has gone much more public uh, than may have existed beforehand. This is still going to be a perilous political moment, especially given the fact that there is still a fear of violence, not only in D.C., but right across the country.
0: And can you talk a little bit about that? And my guess or my fear, I suppose, is that this vote is only going to fuel uh, that uh, whatever plans are in place or what people are perhaps talking about as far as violence. What do we know at this point as far as as any plans and reaction to those plans to make sure and keep people safe?
3: Well, look, President Trump put a statement out earlier today, uh, urging for his supporters to not partake in violence and destruction, whether that's because uh, he's fearful of this falling on him legally down the road, or whether it's because, uh, you know, he understands the gravity of the situation is still to be seen. But it comes uh, amid FBI bulletins that say that there is still an active threat for the U.S. Capitol. There is still an active threat at state legislatures across the country and at federal government buildings. There are still active conversations uh, in the dark parts of the Internet that are calling for some kind of armed protest to take place, uh, and and this is, uh, this is kind of the reason that we're seeing these stepped-up law enforcement personnel, you know, across D.C. Look, there's 20,000 National Guards troops standing, you know, behind me in the vicinity of the U.S. Capitol, far more than we ever have seen uh, in recent history. There are armed guards inside the U.S. Capitol for the first time since the Civil War, uh, National Guards troops, and there are so many National Guards troops in D.C. right now that they outnumber the number of ground forces in iraq and afghanistan by five six seven eight times this shows where the u.s government thinks there is an active threat right now
0: and just before i let you go talking about a possible the senate trial when will we find out or do you know when we'll find out if that will be expedited
3: Well, I mean, look, it's going to take Mitch McConnell to come out with a formal statement to say that he will or will not uh, call on uh, the Senate to come back early. This is just words that are coming out of his office right now. He has not come out uh, and said anything to the otherwise. Uh, We also haven't heard uh, whether or not Mitch McConnell is actually going to vote in favor uh, of of, uh, conviction at this trial as well. So a lot of this hedges on what Mitch McConnell intends to do uh, over the next 48 hours. There was an intent on Democrats' hands uh, to transmit the article of impeachment to the the Senate immediately. But if there's no chance for this to be opened up uh, in the near future, they may hold on to this uh, and ultimately have to leave it to their own party to deal with the trial when Democrats are in control next week.
0: All right, we'll leave it there, Reggie. Busy day for you. Thanks so much for this. Thank you. Well, you likely heard this in the news. A memo leaked to Global News that raises some questions about queue jumping when it comes to getting COVID-19 vaccinations. And in this particular case, it's looking at the second dose of vaccinations. Well, Richard Zussman, Global News online journalist based in Victoria, has been covering this today along with Janet Brown. And Richard joins us on the line now. Thanks so much for doing this.
4: Yeah, Joe, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: So what do we know about this? It originally started as a leaked memo. We've now had a teleconference call with the health minister as well as Dr. Bonnie Henry. What do we know?
4: Yeah, so if you're keeping track at home, there's a few different things going on here. So this specifically has to do with that second dose of the vaccine and doctors receiving it. And as you mentioned, we've heard through Janet Brown's reporting today that in this memo Uh, Coastal Health has become aware that there are some doctors who have prioritized themselves by going to get that second shot earlier than they should have. So that memo reads, it's come to our attention, there have been instances in which physicians have attended our clinics and received their second dose of vaccine before they were invited or permitted to do so. These instances will be investigated and may result in disciplinary action. So I asked Health Minister Adrian Dix about that. Uh, He said, you know, it's a human resources issue, so they would not get into the possible disciplinary action. And this is happening in very few cases. But it is highly concerning that something like this is happening. And so we know the investigation is happening. We know the province is aware. I think, though, Jill, what most people want to know is, how did this happen? Like, aren't there supposed to be checks and balances in place to ensure that the right people are getting the COVID-19 vaccine when they should be getting them?
0: Yeah. And originally there were questions of, well, how many people and exactly that? Do you just to shimmy up to into the room where they're having the vaccinations take place and get one for yourself? How do you do that?
4: Yeah. And so one of the other issues we're hearing as well, and Sarah McDonald, our colleague, has done reporting on this, is about, you know, those who are um, administrators. You know, we have been told all along that the people who will be prioritized during this first phase are frontline workers, especially those in long-term care, but also nurses and other doctors. But what we're also hearing is that, you know, this vaccine The Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, once it's thawed out, it's only good for six hours. So what's happening is that in some of these clinics, we are hearing cases of people not showing up for their appointment. So near the end of that six-hour cycle, uh, there are extra doses available. So the question is, who is getting the call around getting those extra vaccines? And there are concerns that it is people who are working in hospitals and administrative roles that aren't on the front lines that are getting those vaccines. So it comes back to your question, Jill, like what are the checks and balances there in place to ensure the right people are getting it? So when I asked that question to Dr. Henry, she said, Well, part of the challenge here is the clinics are being moved around locations as they get more comfortable delivering the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine, and because of that, they are updating their lists of the people nearby who can come get a last-minute shot, and she did use the word review in her answer to me, that they are reviewing this to ensure that the right people, those on the front lines, are getting the vaccine as needed, and those that aren't required for their work to have the vaccine, i.e. those who either can get very sick from this, but also most importantly could affect someone else um, to make sure those are the people that are getting the vaccine and not those who are in office jobs who don't have that interaction uh, with patients or people living in long-term care.
0: Uh, because one of the things that's come up as well is everybody wants the vaccine rollout to go smoothly. Everybody wants the most high risk, the frontline workers to get that till we understand why uh, there's a certain hierarchy in who gets the vaccine and when. But also, we've been dealing with this for how many months now? And you would think that it might have been a, a smoother way of doing this. So it shouldn't have been a surprise that we needed to have a system in place to make sure this was done honestly, and it was done fairly. And there was, and jumping.
4: And I think a big part of this, Jill, is like you said, everybody wants this to go smoothly. And uh, Dr. Ross Brown was announced as the person who would be running the rollout with Dr. Bonnie Henry uh, you know, a few months ago. And based on what we've heard today, that did not go particularly well because we now have been told that Dr. Penny Ballum, the former... Uh, chair or the former um, head of the of the city of Vancouver, um, and she's the chair of the board at Coastal Health. She is now going to be the one in charge of the vaccine rollout. I mumbled my words there. She was city manager at <laughs> Vancouver. Now that I've got my thoughts straight, there, Jill. But now she has been hired to head the vaccine rollout. And that, again, the province is saying it's because we're going to increase the volume. We're trying to mass distribute as we get into the end of March, into April, May, June. But it's it's a marked shift that someone else now is coming in to run the vaccination program to ensure, like you said, that there aren't queue jumpers, that it's done orderly, the people that need it get it. And then the next phase, and we were told today from Dr. Henry, we're going to find out next week, Who is part of these priority groups in April? Because that's going to be a massive other issue too, Jill. Like, how do we prioritize groups like teachers and uh, police officers, firefighters, truck drivers, frontline journalists, like all these people who are in positions where they are um, directly communicating with the public? They want to be prioritized for the vaccine. How does all that work? We're going to get those details next week.
0: Next week. Uh, anything else discussed uh, on the call today? There seem to always be uh, way more questions than there is time for them.
4: <laughs> yeah, so today, like, vaccine was a big focus today and how the rollout's going. I'm just going to check my own notes because, as you know, these things go by pretty fast. <laughs> and so um queue jumping was a big part of this uh, as well as... Uh, sort of the priority uh, next stage of getting the vaccinations. There were some questions around AstraZeneca. That's a big thing. That That is the vaccine that's being used in the UK to do mass vaccinations. It doesn't have an approval yet in Canada, but there's an anticipation that that will be available here um, in April, potentially. So that's a big part as well. And then also uh, Adrian Dix went over the sort of vaccines that we have, here committed to British Columbia, and we're obviously seeing a mass ramping up, and it doesn't include this commitment we heard from the Prime Minister yesterday. So those were sort of the key issues. Nothing really deviated far. I was a bit surprised we didn't get any questions about uh, the Vancouver Canucks and the mystery surrounding the uh, false positive test connected to a player there. Uh, But, you know, it's uh, we will get another briefing from Dr. Henry tomorrow and it will be another mystery ride as they
0: all are, Jill. (laughs) All right. Uh, On that note, uh, Richard, thanks so much uh, for bringing us up to speed on that. Yeah, thanks
4: for having me. Have a great
0: day. And just bringing you up to date on what is happening with the impeachment, U.S. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell issued a statement a short time ago saying the House of Representatives has voted to impeach the president. The Senate process will now begin at our first regular meeting following receipt of the article from the House. He goes on to say, given the rules, procedures and Senate precedents that govern presidential impeachment trials, there is simply no chance that a fair or serious trial could conclude before President-elect Biden is sworn in next week. The Senate has held three presidential impeachment trials. They have lasted 83 days, 37 days, and 21 days, respectively. He goes on to say even if the Senate process were to begin this week and move promptly, no final verdict would be reached until after President Trump had left office. This is not a decision I am making. It is a fact. The president-elect himself stated last week that his inauguration on January 20th is the quickest path for any change in the occupant of the presidency in light of this reality. I believe it will best serve our nation if Congress and the executive branch spend the next seven days completely focused on facilitating a safe inauguration and an orderly transfer of power to the incoming Biden administration. Uh, that kind of connects with what we are talking about next. And we are looking at what is happening in the United States with the impeachment. And there is a small local connection. In Vancouver, and it's continuing to anger some residents. Our show contributor, John Jang, has more on the Trump Hotel Tower in Vancouver and why that particular tower is back in the news.
5: Hey, good afternoon, Jill. We know that tensions are high right now in the United States, political unrest would be putting it lightly. And although we should feel separated from all of that here in Vancouver, there's an ugly reminder that remains at 1161 West Georgia that people want removed. That as you might recall is the address for the now former Trump Hotel in Vancouver, and the large Trump sign outside the property hasn't been removed, despite the fact the hotel permanently closed in late August last summer. Joining us now to talk on this is Brent Totterin, former Vancouver chief planner and current city planner and urbanist at Totterin Urban Works. Brent, it seems like there is this growing feeling shared by many of the residents in that area that the Trump sign at this property shouldn't be there anymore as the business is no longer
6: operating. Agreed. And I think it's not just a growing feeling. I think it, it grew a long time ago and now it's just kind of an unsatisfied, pretty consistent feeling out there. I certainly hear it a lot. I was one of the first, if not the first person to 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 challenge the the um the connection of the Trump name to the building in the first place. And this was even before Trump ran for pres- president just because even as a business person, his value system, his reputation, I always saw as that the exact opposite of the value system, the brand of Vancouver, if you will. Uh it, there was an inconsistency there and his name had been, as I put it at the time, retroactively duct taped to a very good building designed by Arthur Erickson, one of our best, if not the best Canadian architect of all time. A great building, the second tallest piece of architecture in our skyline, and completely developed and and approved and uh, designed by other people. And then his branding package got retroactively attached to it like he had anything to do with it, uh, which, of course, he didn't. So uh, at the time, I raised the concern about his name being attached to it. When he started to run for president and started to propose things like Muslim bans and his statements about Mexicans, um, just awful racist statements, I called for the the, the removal of the sign, uh, the removal of the, the brand, the removal of the name, of course, knowing that that was probably unlikely because the business owner, Holborn at the time, uh, had no doubt made contractual arrangements and, and you can't break contracts all that easily. I, I wanted there to be a discourse at the time about how inconsistent everything he was saying, even before he ran for president, but certainly after he ran for president, was with, when it was compared to our value system, our belief system here in Vancouver. So That got a lot of attention at the time, but of course it was a business at that time and there were contracts involved, so I wasn't surprised that the name didn't go away. But when the business closed, I assumed that the sign would disappear relatively quickly now that the name was no longer attached. Now, there's two ways of looking at that. One, does the city have the right to actually insist that the sign be removed? And An issue I raised on Twitter a few weeks ago was, Now that the business is closed and no longer associated with the building, it's technically advertising something that doesn't exist in the building anymore. And that's usually considered what's called third-party advertising in the context of our sign bylaw here in Vancouver and our rules. Now, of course, when the sign was put up originally, it wasn't third-party advertising, so it was allowed to be put up legally, of course. But the question is for the city, what happens when the business closes? How much time? does any business have to or any building have to remove a sign when the business is no longer in the building when the business is now advertising something that isn't there anymore and that's a usual question for for, for the city how long would they normally have normally take and of course we're in a situation that's very not normal because we've got just an absolute nightmare of a person doing remarkably horrible things in the United States right now so It begs the question, what legal power does the city have to fast track the removal of the sign to insist that it be taken down now that it's no longer advertising something that's actually in the building? And I understand the city provided you with a response regarding uh, third party advertising and noted that it was legal when it was put up. But that's not the question. And that's not the answer to the right question. The real question is now that the business isn't there anymore, what legal avenues does the city have to insist that it be taken down? Now, even separate from the city, here's the point. If I were that building owner, with everything that's going, been going on, I've always assumed that that building owner was mortified or should be mortified by everything that Trump's been doing during his candidacy, during his presidency. But now, when we're talking about insurrection and coups, it's remarkable to me that they didn't rush to get that name off their building, that they didn't rush to... Remove the reminder that they ever got into business with this man in the first place. So I'm really surprised that, regardless of what the city can and can't do, that the business owner hasn't taken the sign down as fast as they possibly could. It it is remarkable to me that it is still up.
5: As you mentioned, the response I got from the city didn't satisfy my original curiosity into this matter, but they did provide the statement saying that it was installed in accordance with the city's bylaws, which is not really what I asked, anyways. I know it's an unusual request, it's just a sign at the end of the day, but it's the brand that people don't agree with. And even if it is unusual, you would think the city would appreciate the rather unusual circumstance that is life right now and try to get ahead of this even becoming an issue.
6: Well, when I was chief planner in Vancouver, I was technically in charge of putting signs up. But what I was not involved with was enforcement when a sign should come down, because that wasn't part of a city planner's role. So I don't know the answer. And I've never heard of a situation where the city really was motivated to have a sign come down because businesses close all the time. And probably the city doesn't consider it a top priority to insist that signs relating to businesses that have closed come down immediately. I think they probably do have some legal authority to insist on it, but they probably just haven't seen it as a priority because that happens all the time. But as you say, this is very unusual times. This is unprecedented. You have a seditionist um, who, uh, you know, well beyond the worst president in, in American history, an actual seditionist um, with their name still on our streetscape, still on our skyline. And so this is far from normal times. So I would expect that the city would want to know what their legal powers are, even if in the past they've frankly never had to use them before.
5: He is Brent Totterin, former Vancouver chief planner, brent really appreciate you giving us some time today and just clarifying on exactly why this is a problem
6: my pleasure canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime history and the paranormal since 2017 the award-winning dark poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the great white north and beyond delivering chilling tales from a uniquely canadian perspective